You're listening to That'll Preach. I'm Brian. I'm back here with Paul Rizcala. Paul is back at his stomping grounds, Hillsdale. What was that, Paul? What was that weird noise? Are you, it, uh, are you in the was, bathroom? <laughs> I was, as I was pouring it, I realized yeah. that it sounded like urine. It's water, I promise. Yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, anyway, Paul, uh, he's podcasting from his... Uh, Discreet location from, in a bunker. From, from, yeah, no, from stall number two in Hillsdale's bathroom. Uh, Hillsdale's men's bathroom. Yes. Um, but uh, how's it feel to be back in your... Uh, in your in your uh, layer, it's nice in my layer. the The lights shut off before we started recording. Actually, I hate that I have these dumb motion sensor lights. It like f- actually freaks the crap out of me. I'll be sitting here just like reading, like deep in thought over some philosophical puzzle, and the lights go off, and I will freak out. That's why you need so. to be reading while you're spinning in your chair. I do. Or this is just God telling me to go outside and quit spending so much time in my office. Yeah, you don't have a window. No, whereas your when your office is so much nicer than mine. Know, this is okay. evidence that pastors are better treated than academics. Are better people than academics. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. Uh, your view is nicer, though. Well, uh, you know, I, all I can see from your room, actually, do a little 360. I kind of want to see your office a little bit. So you uh, my, got your. Uh, I've got like 400 wires attached to my computer. Nah. But suffice to say, I've got bookshelves, white walls, and my tie is on a hook. That'd be hilarious if, like, I only see this little section. Like, the only section of your office I see are these bland walls, and then your like degrees, and then it's your just pretentious, like your pretentious degrees. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. You look over to the side; it's just like concrete, and there's like a there's like a prisoner attached to a wall. Like, it's like that sounds weird. It's like how long is he? Uh, oh yeah, that does sound weird. Well, you know, weirder things I, have happened. Yeah, or it's like you go over. They, yeah, espouse. There's like a there's like a gold jacuzzi. You know, yeah. built into your office that you're not showing. <laughs> for all, like for this all of my for all of my criticisms of like lavish Western extravagance, I've got like a golden jacuzzi filled with Benjamins. That's right. <laughs> That's right. As the kids call them. As the well, Paul. Say. I mean, uh, you, people don't know that you're a big shot. You've got a got an article coming out uh, <laughs> on the Gospel Coalition. I have, right? I have, I have a few. That's true. And it is your take on Song of Solomon. Yes. And how it applies to dating relationships <laughs> and sexual purity. So uh, go ahead and tell us about that. Have you have you heard those like – no, you didn't because you didn't grow up in like evangelical subculture. No, but, but I, I feel like the, I missed a, a, a wonderful time. You missed out on a lot of strange things. There were way too many. There were one too many talks on – the Song of Solomon and what is permissible and not permissible in the marriage bed. And by one too many talks, I mean any talks at all on this. And what did you learn? Learned a lot of things that we can't say because this is a family-friendly podcast. Oh, you're afraid of the Bible, huh? Afraid of talking just about what Song of Song Song (laughs) of Solomon. There were a lot of very, very creative um, interpretations of very specific lines from the Song of Solomon. Hmm. Fruity. Yeah, it's like I've never started sweating while reading a Bible commentary. This is uh, <laughs> this is kind of odd. This is when evangelicals try too hard to make the Bible sexy. Well, Literally. There you go. There you go. But we're actually going to talk about something not about related to this at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to talk about the Enneagram. Yeah. Paul, what's your Enneagram number? I actually don't know. Yeah. I've never taken yeah. an Enneagram test. You're you're a five. 
What does that mean? What do you think about me screams five? I don't know. You just uh, very systematic. No, you maybe you're a four. You've got kind of an emo side to you. Or no, you're a one. You're a one. You're a reformer. You, See, you stand for justice and, and reforming things. The fact that like so many of those could be true. No, no, no. Is you're exactly nine. what's you're wrong with the problem. You're a nine wing that's, one. You're, <clears> yeah. <throat> okay. So, so, but that's what you actually wrote your article about the problem with personality tests. This has been yeah. my hot take for a long time. How did that, you get like? Did you just email Gospel Coalition and been like, hey, it's Paul, it's Dr. Paul Riscala. You know me from that, I'll preach. I want to write an article. No, they asked all the good people and they said no. And eventually they got down to the bottom yeah, they of the were, list. They were like, you know, Don Carson said no to this. He didn't want to write about the Enneagram. John Piper's too busy. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And we'll give it to old Paul Riscala. <clears throat> I feel like if you're, I'm not going to say that. That's too controversial. Anyway. No, 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 no. You got to no, say no. it. No, because it, it'll, it'll... Sign language it to me. <laughs> oh, my I'll, gosh. I'll I can't believe you said that. Yeah, okay. Um, so personality tests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the, what, why did you want to write about... What's your hot take on personality tests? <clears throat> there's a few things. I guess one, just most obviously, there's absolutely no science behind them. They're flat-out pseudoscience. And this is, I guess, more specifically Myers-Briggs and Enneagram in particular, the two most popular ones. There's some science behind like the big five. And so corporations use some of that, but there's absolutely big, no big science five is, uh, Big five is Don what, Carson, ocean? John Piper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. John MacArthur. Ocean, right? It's it's uh, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, yeah. um, a, 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 agreeableness, and neuroticism. That's what it is. Wow. That's yeah. very impressive. Well, I, I mean, it's a mnemonic device, Ocean. So I'm like, it is, but, but yeah, no, that, that, is that is a, yeah. that is a pretty, what's your Ocean score? How, I don't know. You, I've never taken that either. Oh, you should take it. Everyone who's listening, try to guess how uh, Paul scores in openness and neuroticism. I thought you said eroticism. <laughs> well, wait, well, well, we're going to get some weird emails for that. Yeah, all that Song of Solomon training you got as a kid messed you up. Openness. I bet you're pretty. Yeah. I bet you're pretty high in openness. You're probably mid mid tier extroversion. But I'm also very stubborn. Like I'm very set in my beliefs. I'm a very convicted really? individual. Probably. But I, Maybe but not. You, you know seem to like. I mean, you like to play with ideas. That's true, but I know how to play you're willing with them to change your mind. them. Or, okay. yeah, I'd, I'd like to think that I'm open to evidence. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. So conscientious. I think you're a pretty conscientious guy. Oh, thanks. I think you are yeah. too. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, you don't have, okay. <laughs> agreeable. I'm just, I'm just trying to be I think you're polite. low in agreeableness. No, I don't know. It depends on what it is. I do think I, I can tend to be a people pleaser too often. And that's one of my flaws. Except for, but then how does that work with your heavy conviction? I mean, I, f I do feel like you're, you're like, if someone says something you don't agree with, you're going to be like, you're going to be pretty blatant about that. It philosophically. depends. Like it, it takes a lot from me to be able to do that because it doesn't mm -hmm. come naturally. I'm very conflict averse. I like oh, people really? to like me. What about yeah. neuroticism? I don't, I don't think you're I, very I think, I think I'm very, yeah, I'm, I'm like yeah. just very chill. So I feel like no matter me. 
how high you score on the other ones, if you score high in Narasim, it like cancels everything. <laughs> it's like it doesn't matter. You're like, oh, you're so open. You're so conscientious. You're extroverted. You're great. Yeah. And then you're like, yeah, Narasim is like, oh, none of that matters because you're an anxious mess. So it's like, oh, he's amazing. He's godly. He like plays with kids. He's like got a great job. Yeah. Yeah. But he's like, he's it, a like, serial like killer. He, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a 10, but he scores high on Narasim or something. Or he, he's the perfect guy, except. You know, that was you, but, Brian. Uh, that was me. That was me. I think I've gone down in neuroticism, though. No, you definitely have. That's sanctification. Look yeah. at that. Look at I that. That's that's very noticeable. Maybe we should too. start marking people's sanctification based upon the uh, their the ocean fives. score. Yeah, their ocean <laughs> score. Yeah, yeah. You but, just uh, go okay. in for your discipleship meetings, and he's got like a little chart. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, <laughs> big five. The big five person. I mean, you can find tests online. I've taken it a couple times, and. Yeah, there you go. Jordan Peterson uh, says Uh-oh. that it is one of the approved clinical thing. You know, uh, okay. He says, you know, high in agreeableness. It's good. Okay. <laughs> it's not good. You don't want to be high in agreeableness, high in neuroticism. It, it makes you a, t- a tool. But uh, <laughs> it's not good. good. That's way it's too good. It's not good. It's a bloody which, mess. <laughs> which means that he, even he thinks that if this one is one of the approved psychological tools, then the others are not as science or evidence-based. So yeah, you would so, agree with me. Okay, yeah. So open that up a little bit. What do you like? Any First of all, wh- what is non-scientific? And then maybe the second question would be, why is it so popular if it's non-scientific? I mean, Enneagram the, and Myers-Briggs. Stuff doesn't Briggs. have to be scientific to be popular. If anything, like the popularity of something just depends on how much it makes us feel good about ourselves. And so the fact that we like gravitate towards it is just more evidence that we're super narcissistic and love to have ourselves analyzed and have people tell us how we are and what we're like. And it really is just an example of like Paul talking about how we like to have our ears tickled. Like it's it's, it's just a, like classic case of, oh, tell me more about myself. And like, oh, I want to hear like, I've got this tendency. Oh yeah. Thanks for like telling me that about myself. Like it's just, it's weirdly <laughs> narcissistic. And I don't know why I'd put on that weird voice to describe. Uh, it's weird. Cause you also into... put on a wig and you put on lips. <laughs> it was super bizarre. You were really no. committed to this impression, <laughs> but, uh, okay. So the, the Enneagram ha- has no scientific backing, meaning like what, there's no there's no tests on it or yeah, it's not it, Meyer, like people, or even Myers Briggs. Like, yeah, it was not like psychologists were not the ones who came up with it or there's no psychology behind it. And it really is just, just like people got together and like, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we just like designed this questionnaire and like this fourfold system of designating people. And then do, they're do just you like, think yeah. that every, everyone behind these things are like California, like, yeah, like uh, yeah, Orange basically. County girls, like yeah, Valley girls, <laughs> Valley girls. <laughs> hey, wouldn't it be great if we just got together and like had our frappuccinos and just oh came up with gosh. like? Oh my gosh! I know we're that gonna is, get canceled. You're, can- you're canceled. We're already canceled. I know. Okay, but, that's, but I, I, yeah, that's not even it, like the worst thing. But what I mean, if they're not accurate, though, why do I mean? Obviously, companies have been using Myers Briggs at least at least Myers Briggs. I don't know so much the Enneagram, but Myers Briggs to build teams and. You'd think that if it wasn't working, it would not be working or they'd stop using it, but it seems to bear fruit. I mean, what the threshold for what it means to work, quote unquote, is pretty low. I think if you just, if you know that someone, if you like put together your like introverted people or your extroverted people or decide to have a mix between those two, I don't know, it doesn't take much to be able to 
to see that those kinds of groupings would would be good. So I, I don't. It's like the fact that it works. I don't think is evidence for it's being scientifically backed or evidence based. Is um, it that no one has studied it, or that it's been shown to not be accurate? Uh, it's not. Well, it's been shown to not be accurate in another sense, which I'll talk about. But okay. initially, it was not devised by like scientists. It was just people both the Myers Briggs and, and the, the Enneagram. Enneagram. Yeah, um, but the science that shows that it's unreliable is not directly relating to personality tests, but relating to just the science behind introspection, which we've talked about a few different times. And the science behind introspection basically says we are very notoriously bad at introspecting. And we don't really know what we're like and what we like and what we believe and what we think and whether we're introverted or not. Like the kinds of questions that were asked in order to provide the answer or the, the, the whatever ENTJ, nine wing four, whatever outputs you get from these tests, those kinds of questions, the answers that we give aren't like, we don't really know ourselves that well to be able to give those kinds of answers. So we kind of like almost lie to ourselves just a little bit. Um, we either say like what we want to be true about us or what people have told us is true about us, but human beings were not built to be super introspective like that at that fine grain level. And so it's kind of just unreliable. But I don't think that that's as black and white. I mean, you can still, I, I don't know that people are answering those questions with an idealized version of themselves. I think that one of the inputs is not just introspection, but also things that you've noticed in your interactions with other people. So you could say, uh, you know, I enjoy like if a question is like I enjoy um, or, or I, I tend to, uh, you know, be overreactive to conflict or something. Well, that that's something that can be verified by people around you. I mean, I, I'd imagine that's because something like that happened multiple times. So I, I don't know if it's all based upon introspection that you're answering these questions. That's true. Um, I will say though, we don't often use all of the evidence from all of our interactions when we answer those questions. So it's, it's very difficult for us to hold in, in, in our minds all of who we are. We might gravitate towards one example that is sort of looming in our minds of when we overreacted or when we wanted to stay home rather than go to a party or these kinds of binaries when we're forced to like pick one we tend to just gravitate towards the example that is most close in our minds. And, and we use well, that to define who we are. And I think that's a problem. But even on a lot of these tests, it's not just yes or no, or it, it usually they give a numerical scale, a one to five, or sometimes rarely, you know, it gives you more of a gradient of options. And I get what you're saying about maybe even like selective memory, yeah. But they ask a, a wide range of questions that hit on a lot of different areas of your life, from your vote, from your vocation to your uh, marriages, to your marriage, to your friendships, to your upbringing, all that stuff. Yeah. So I think there are built-in ways to at least they're not looking on one, they're not analyzing you on one sort of scale. And and I think maybe I would say that you don't have exhaustive knowledge of yourself. Mm -hmm. But do you have enough, do you have enough accurate introspection that a test like this could at least be helpful, could be informative? Um, now, I, I, I kind of agree with you in my skepticism about how much we should hold tightly to these yeah. personality tests. So I'm more just thinking like, to what degree can they be revealing? I just, um, I just, I just think that we have like, these tests force us to put labels on ourselves on the basis of 
lots of data points, lots of different experiences and things that we know about ourselves in the past. And we have to try to like group those into some kind of label like um, overreactive or introverted or oh, tired or and it, it so the questions us frame to like draw the que conclusions right. from and that that kind of like that ability we're just not good at so it's already framed in a way that's setting you up yes and to and, and, categorize yeah. yourself in a certain way right and so I, I think so when when I typically present this I think there are three problems with personality test one is it's not science-based two we're not good at introspection we're not good at answering these kinds of questions and even the tests themselves are kind of set up not to elicit the right kinds of responses from us. And the third, the third point I think is the most deep one is that we come to look like the answers that we end up giving and the scores that they tell us about ourselves. So my, one of my favorite quotes from the poet Iris Murdoch, she says, man is the creature who paints himself then comes to resemble the painting. Basically, like whatever descriptions we get about ourselves, whether that's ENTJ, whether that's nine wing four, whether that's extroverted, introverted, whatever, these labels never actually encapsulate who we are because human beings are complex and messy. But when we have a label, we tend to use that label to define who we are. And so we look more like the label because the label is the picture of ourself that has been painted and we come to resemble that. And so it's I like think a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. kind of thing. Right. And people, well, people end up using like, oh, well, I'm introverted, so I'm not going to go to this party tonight. Or I'm extroverted, so I can't be expected to sit down and listen. And we tend to think of these ourselves in these like unhelpful binaries that sometimes end up stagnating sanctification and enabling our like bad tendencies, stuff that we should be growing out of. Right. It almost gives us like a get out of jail free card or a license to keep on being selfish under the guise of, well, this is just who I am. This is what Myers-Briggs has told me about myself. This is what Enneagram has told me about myself. Um, when it's not, one, it's not really who you are. And two, we use those in selfish ways because we're humans and we're prone to use everything selfishly. So the first one is it's not scientifically based. The last one was that it can actually be a self-fulfilling prophecy and it makes us uh, maybe even count as virtue some of our vices saying yeah. this is simply how I am, and it removes agency to change who you are. What's the middle one again? The middle one is just that we're not good at introspection, and so we're not good at even answering the kinds of questions that are asked of us in these tests. Okay, like we so- don't, we, don't, we don't really know ourselves as well as we think we do. Well, here's my rebuttal. Just to, to play devil's advocate. Things, or just yeah. to the middle one? So, well, to all three. So okay. to the first one, it's not scientifically bad, because that, it, you know, it's a question of, does it mean that studies haven't been extensively done on them? or they've been shown to not be accurate, that'd be one. Uh, for the second one with introspection, can we introspect enough that this could still teach us something about our inclinations? And also the questions that are asked, like for example, introversion, extroversion, those are questions for the big five, which is scientifically backed that people use. So even in the big five, they're creating categories for you and they're asking you questions and framing things a certain way. So. It seems like there is a legitimate way of talking about introversion and extroversion and openness and and neuroticism and all these things, and they'd still require you to fill out the test. So um, apparently, you have an, you have enough wherewithal to be introspective to fill out the scientific Big Five test, 
but you don't for the Enneagram? I, I, so I still, I, I do think that, so ocean and the big five is there's, there's science behind it. That's true. But I, I do think that the same light latter two criticisms apply to that one as well. I think those two apply to all personality tests that, um, some, some frame the questions better than others. And I'm, I'm not saying that we should be total skeptics about ourselves. I think the, I'm just trying to give us a healthy sort of caution about, um, thinking of ourselves in unhelpful binaries. So, so, um, well, framing it as like, there's a spectrum of course you between would say introversion. that you cisgender, <clears throat> I know, right. Hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> cisgendered white male. Yeah. Uh, these things, there, from there are spectrums <laughs> from, from Egypt. Yeah. Um, these things are on spectrums and we were, we're more extroverted sometimes than we are introverted. And I think it's just, we don't want to, uh, my, my big caution is I don't want us to use a label to try to capture okay. all of who we are, that, right? That, like that that's make, not, yeah. yeah. That makes sense because I think the difference between the big five <clears throat> and Myers-Briggs and Enneagram is the big five doesn't give you a label. It doesn't say you're right. this kind of a person. It right. just gives you levels for certain traits. Right. Um, and so that is helpful where it's just like, I'm just giving you the numbers and it's a scale. So you could be, uh, you know, your your score on Neurosome could be really high or it could mm-hmm. be, low on agreeableness or something like that. And it's just saying that given a population, you know, you, the, these are, these are five general traits that people seem to have in a, in a given population. Right. And here's how you score in them, but it's not saying anything about your type. It's just saying you're like this. And I think it's designed in such a way to which you can track to some extent progress. Whereas you know, if you're an, I'm an Enneagram four, so I'm going to be this way. You're not thinking in terms of progress. You're thinking in terms of that's what I'm like, as yeah. opposed to if you saw, oh, I'm really low in agreeableness and that's not producing the results I want in life. I could grow in that area, you know, something like that. Yeah. And I, I think, I think any kind of, I guess this is, we, there's an sort of, there's a lot of criticisms that we could make. And one that I just want to like touch on briefly is just this idea that these personality tests force us to think about ourselves in isolation. And we don't always have the best picture of ourselves in isolation. And we know ourselves primarily through community. And we've talked about this in, in past podcasts, but how I know who I am is not when I sit down and think really deeply about who I am. It's in the context of not only interacting with people, but allowing people to provide feedback into my life. That is going to give me a more honest and open um representation and depiction of who I am, then it is when I just sit down by myself with some questions and try to think about that. That can be helpful, but there's going to be a limit to it. And I just don't want us to think that like the most accurate depiction, accurate depiction we get of ourselves is the one that we get in isolation, answering questions, and then having like some score generated on um, as a result of a, you know, some software. We, we should do a, a like a test, <clears throat> like an experiment where we have like a control group where they take an Enneagram test or Myers-Briggs and they get the result that the, whatever the algorithm says they're going to get. And mm-hmm. then we do another one where it's randomized and see and compare how many people go, oh yeah, that's me from the control group who actually gets the right, an- who actually gets what their uh, input answers, the, solu- the answer that their, in- that their answer should get. Yeah. <clears throat> um, that actually basically takes the test correctly and gets a certain type and, and how much they agree with that versus the people who it's either just no matter what they put in, we're just going to randomly assign them a type and see if both are like, Oh yeah. The same percentage you're like, Oh yeah, that's totally me. You know, it, it'd, be, yeah. it'd be an interesting way. If you wanted to change someone too, if you wanted to grow someone be like, Oh no, you're actually a, 
a six, you're actually <laughs> a nine. And then they end up becoming like, oh, I am. And so they end up changing in a, in a positive way <laughs> to those that's, things. If you want to manipulate someone into sanctification, that's a great way to do it. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm even thinking like you was the word sanctification. And I, I wonder how much of our concept of sanctification, of becoming holy and of, you know, growing in Christian maturity is conditioned by a, a modern focus on internal psychology versus I would imagine the ancients and the early church and, you know, everything before the, what, I don't know, 17th century, 18th century, <laughs> I don't know, sure. before the Enlightenment. Yeah. Uh, if that, I don't even know my history, so you know what I'm talking about. But like if, <laughs> yeah. if, if in our, our modern sense of like, and Carl Truman talks about this in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, where he says that it's a modern invention that the self is attached to our psychology. So yeah. when we think about who I am, we think about our internal state, our psychology, mm -hmm. which is a new category versus for the majority of human history, who you were was tied to your class, tied to your people, tied to your family, tied to your yep. vocation, all those types of things. Um, and I wonder how that affects sanctification, where we think about what does it mean to grow as a Christian? I, I wonder if the early Christians thought in terms of acts and, and, and motivations, but, but not, not motivations in the sense of like, we think today, like, am I feeling authentic in this moment or does this feel true to me? But like, am I seeking what is good or not? Mm -hmm. And then an action associated with that. And sanctification would be, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking the good things more and for the right reasons. Whereas now it seems more like growth is more about how your psychology is doing. Right. Um, but I, that, I don't know, I'm, right, I'm just yeah. test driving this one. Maybe I'm going to crash into the ground, but but I'm, 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 what do you think? How do you think the, the modern conception of psychology affects? I mean, I don't think the Apostle Paul was doing personality tests. Like it wasn't right, even something they right. thought about. Yeah. I, I do think that, I mean, this is sort of my, and I've said this a, a bunch of times before, there is something just intrinsically wrongheaded about the inward turn. Like, like when we shift our attention inside of us towards ourselves it's just unhealthy. Like we need to get out of the habit of doing that ritualistically. Like this is the whole thing with the, the Lewis quote that isn't the, really the Lewis quote that we talked about last time. We need to stop looking inside of ourselves. Like humbleness or humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? The fake Lewis quote, we, we talked about the real one. Right. Anytime I begin to look inside myself to establish this is what I'm really like, or these are my faults, or this is whatever, like that's just, it, it's not the right way to sanctification. Like the, the right way to sanctification is, ex, is to look outside of myself. It's to look at God. It's to look at people. It's to look at my relationships. It's to care for others. It's to pursue good things. And I think like turning the limelight and turning the attention of like my eyes, my thoughts inward on myself is just, a, it's always, almost always a distraction. That's not to say, and like, that's not to say that there isn't something to like, if I, if like working out my own salvation, thinking about um, if I do have a negative tendency, then trying to bring that to light and understand what that's about. But more often than not, I feel like the inward turn, us putting our attention onto ourselves is just another way that we can be selfish. And so I'm just like very, very wary of that. And most times it's just not productive. Like when someone says like, oh, well, like I'm, I'm struggling with this guilt or I just don't feel like God is close to me or like, Sometimes there's something there. And most of the time it's, well, like, are you in community? Are you serving people? Are you doing things? Like, are, is your attention focused outside of yourself? Or are you just like, the more you look on the inside, the more you're going to despair. 
That is not the answer to your problem. If anything, that's just going to exacerbate the issue. And I know that's that's sort of like broad and vague, but this, this inward turn of attention is often unhealthy and we need to begin looking outside of ourselves. And so this is why like the introspective psychology stuff is just not the, not the right way to think about how I, how I should grow, how I should get better. Well, you even look at the, the church history or the reform tradition or, you know, guys like Luther and Calvin. And, and what's amazing is how much focus they put on the external means of grace or the, you know, the external things like, you know, Luther's talking about like, you know where my assurance come from? It's not my heart or how much I love God or how much I feel for him because that fluctuates. It's in my baptism. Mm -hmm. And you think about the Lord's Supper too. You have the, in the sacraments, you have these objective signs that are subjectively received to be sure. Right, there's there's right. an element of believing, you know, um, except maybe not in the case of baptism to some, I don't know. It's just, that's a whole other thing. But, um, it, it shows the kindness of God where he's like, look, I don't want you to be looking inside of yourself for a spark of righteousness because you won't find it. You'll find just sin and all the things that we find in the dark parts of our own hearts. Um, but he says that I want your assurance to be in Christ, someone outside of you. As long as Christ is faithful, you're okay. And um, I even think sometimes in evangelical circles, we could be too much like, are you a real Christian? Like, are you a real, are you a real Christian? Like, are you a real, real Christian? You know? And, uh, it's, it's, it's from a good place. Like you're trying to, you don't want easy believism. You don't want people just being like being Christians, just believing, checking the box. Um, I believe in Jesus, all that stuff. But sometimes in an effort to overcorrect that or an effort to correct that we overcorrect and we end up making people feel like their Christian life is something that they generate themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, how you're doing a particular week is based upon your spiritual disciplines and, and how you feel about God at any given moment, rather than being completely dependent upon the grace of God. And I wonder if that's why it's already in our culture. We have such a, such an attention to our inner psychology, not necessarily bad. I, I think, I think there's some good that we are more introspective now. I, I mean, I think in some ways that's a privilege because we're not, you know, in threat of war, we have time to be introspective. We don't have to worry about working the fields all day so our family can eat. Like we actually have the time to like <laughs> think and, and produce art and creativity and, and you know, all those things. But there's a downside where um, our, our sense of, um, even our sense of well-being is so internalized. Mm -hmm. Whereas for most history, if you could eat and you weren't being raided by opposing armies and you're, and you know, 50% of your kids made it past the age of five, you were living a good life. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, life was great. Yeah. And, um, and, I, and I wonder too, how much of the uh, obsession with personality tests, which again, I think they can give some insight. I mean, I talk about the Enneagram in, in, in just with people, but I, I never use it as a serious, like right. defining thing. But I wonder if the hunger for that is because um, it's, the, the the kind of suffering that we face today because we're so prosperous is very internal. And right. so the kinds of guidance and wisdom we want are going to be directed toward the inner life. We're not going to be thinking about what maybe people in the past did. We're always thinking about our internal life. Um, and and yeah. maybe that, but maybe that's the problem. Like you're saying, we're too internally focused and that's what's causing, you know, the anxiety and the depression and the, you know, I think that's right. Stuff. I think, yeah, like I think Paul Washer said, 
Um, if you show me your, are you insane? <laughs> I don't know why you're, I don't know why you're mentioning Paul Washer. I'm talking about you. <laughs> There's a very small subset of our listeners who will very that small joke. subset. Yeah. But for them, it, that, that joke was great. It was hilarious. It was a Go 10 ahead. out of 10. What, what did Paul Washer uh, say? He, he said something along the lines of, if you show me your, your bank statements and your daily planner, like your, your timekeeping device, your calendar, your schedule, um, I'll tell you whether or not you're a Christian. So like the, that, I think there is something to that. When we, when we ask the question, are you a real Christian? Are you genuine? It's not a question of like, oh shoot, I need to look inside my psychology and figure out like what I genuinely believe. Yeah, it's, it's a question no. of how much money you give. Exactly. <laughs> it's a question of like looking outside. <laughs> I mean, there is something to like, it, it, where am I putting my time and my resources and my efforts? Like, is that reflective of the Christian life? It's by but fruit that you know you're like, it's not, it's not like your beliefs are not like these internal psychological states. It's what, what is, what is my life about? What is my life doing? It's, it's outside of you. Like, it's not just about, it's not feelings. It's not brain chemistry. It's not internal psychology. Like if I want to know what I believe, I don't look inside my own head. I look at the world, right? Like, do I know that there's a God? Yes, that, that's something outside of me. It's not like I don't close my eyes and think about deep down what is actually true of my psychology. I look at the world and I'm like, yeah, like there's a God. Like, is Christianity true? Yeah, like look, look at look at God's grace in my life. It's not, it's not inside of me. Like that's that's the issue. That's what I want to. I think out. it's a little too harsh though for Washer to be like, I'll look at your schedule and your bank account because it's like that can he lead to another. Didn't say it exactly. That's, well, that's that can Paul lead Washer to another kind Paul of Rascala. Yeah, that, that could be another kind of works righteousness. It's like, oh, it's look not, at your- it's not, that, it's not that you're saved by those things. But if I'm looking for like evidence of fruit, like the fruit of my beliefs is not like whether or not I have some psychological states. But, is am I, am I living out the Christian life? Sure, but like, I mean, like how much of your schedule should be given up to prayer for Paul Washer to be satisfied that you have met the criteria? But I, I, it's not even just about like practicing spiritual disciplines, but like if I looked at my planner and it was all just like, like me time, like, like, yeah. I, like video games, like never leave my house, like, yeah, like that, that's, that's alarming. And if I, if I look at where I'm investing my, myself and I see that it's not God glorifying and, and loving God and loving people, then that's a huge red flag. Like, I think that's more of what he was saying. Yeah, It's not about it. like I, what psychological states you're like ticking yeah. the boxes on. I was talking to somebody about this, about Paul Washer though. And sometimes where it's like, if someone's backsliding, the temptation is to be like, well, if you were a real Christian, you wouldn't be doing this, which actually would lead them into more uh, yeah, of, I, a, I of a works mindset. So, so I, I think you, you, you bring people the gospel and you tell them about grace and that to somebody who has a heart chain, that's going to motivate them. I actually, Washer had a great sermon on the love of God where, where I, I might've told this before on the, on the podcast where he's like at this, you know, backsliding church and he preaches this hour long sermon on the love of God. And these, you know, reformed bros come up to him like, brother Paul, we brought you in because we thought reformed you were going to, you know, bros. lay the smack down. <laughs> yeah. We thought you were going to lay the smack down on these backsliders. And Washer's like, that's why I preached on the love of God because for mm. a believer, the love of God God's love for us is the great motivator of yeah. obedience, you know, mm -hmm. and absolutely. Um, but this is a great discussion. I mean, I, this has got my brain going even more. We should keep talking about this on, on another episode because I think this is a important uh, topic. W when does your article come out? Who knows? We'll see. Oh my gosh. When, when it drops, I'll let you know. There might not even be a gospel coalition by the time you get this published, <laughs> but uh, we'll be excited to, 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 uh, 
to check that out. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna troll you in the comments. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna put it under. I'll be like it'll be like uh, Mark Driscoll one two, one two five. <laughs> Mark Driscoll one two five, and I'm just gonna like, you light go. you up. But uh, I look forward to it. There you go. Thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next week.